I have a lot of time for Ray Kurzweil. He, I think that uh, his predictions are provocative and, as you say, a really good uh, success rate. With respect to um, like future pandemics and diseases, yeah, I think it's really interesting um, what new technologies might do to uh, alleviate disease. From the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University and Human Elements Canada, this is Disrupting Good, a podcast that looks at how technologies and trends are disrupting the way we do good. Now, here's your host, Matt Ewins. Welcome back to Disrupting Good. Off the top, you heard Lior Rothschild, the Executive Director for Canadian Business for Social Responsibility, reacting to a prediction by Ray Kurzweil regarding the eradication of most disease by the end of this decade somewhat topical as this podcast is being released during the COVID-19 pandemic restrictions here in Canada. As always, this episode is made possible by support from the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University and Human Elements Canada Limited. And in this episode, we will be hearing our guests discuss what technology trends they are most concerned about. We're also going to hear about an organization who sees human differences as the key to valuable and diverse, thriving societies. And we also hear three of our guests react to Ray Kurzweil's disease eradication prediction. And now, on with the show. In our last episode, we shared some trends and technologies that our guests were most excited about. We covered instant translation, experiential giving, artificial intelligence, and institutional reform. Our first guest, with his take on a trend he finds concerning, is Lior Rothschild, the ED for CBSR. Perhaps building on the institutional reform topic from the last episode, Lior talks to a challenge we certainly face as a society today. There's there's so many ways to answer it. That's why it's actually a difficult <laughs> question to answer. Um, the immediate thought that came in my head was AI, but once I started, then I was like, no, it's climate change. Actually, it's the answer I'll give you, which is, um, I, I would say for me, the the most concerning trend that I see and that I'm monitoring um, is uh, the fact that the the public institutions that we've relied on for so long that provide good governance and a peaceful way to interact with each other are in flux right now. Um, some of it is driven by uh, by a sort of a populist kind of um, political rhetoric. And I think that that is partly driven by this idea that there's so much disruption. And so people are trying to provide easy answers to complex problems and people are gravitating to, yeah, let's just blame everything on this. So, uh, you know, I think I'm referring to things like Brexit. Yeah, we'll just blame the EU for all of our problems. You know, I think that, um, you know, in the... Uh, in the oil and gas sector, I think, yeah, you know, it's forget about the fact that our our traditional customers are now our competitors. No, the problem is not that. The problem is actually these environmental radicals who are trying to close down our industry. I think that gravitating to uh, easy 
easy answers uh, based on some frustration is leading us to erode some of the institutions that have traditionally been there to provide um, fair rules for how to conduct business with each other and, and um, diplomatic ties with each other. And so the divisiveness and the um, inability to have reasonable conversation or, or a deterioration of that is really concerning when there's so many other complex problems that we actually need to solve. But I do think that we need some innovation in the uh, political, public governance space to allow us an ability to have reasoned debate and disagree with each other because disagreement is healthy to arrive at solutions that can actually meet the scale of some of the problems we're facing and not just bury our heads and uh, look for something quick and easy that will throw a Band-Aid on a problem and kick it to somebody else later. Yeah, I think that the, 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 the challenge of the challenge that I just presented is that there isn't an easy answer to how to solve that either. But I, I do think that one part of the solution is um, that people need to actually diversify their information sources and, uh, and be informed and vote. I, I, I'm, I'm still so shocked every time when an election happens and people talk about, yeah, like a 54% turnout, it's amazing, it's historic. It's like, what? That is so unbelievably low. I can't believe that we have come to a place where we're so content with so few people deciding the outcome of the, the power structures that decide the, the fate of our society. It, it's really baffling to me. So I think just more engagement, more awareness, not relying on only one information source to gather all of our beliefs and opinions is really important. And yeah, I think that through that kind of discourse, then we, I hope, would not default to the most extreme position on any issue. Oh, there's a problem with this institution? Well, let's just burn it down then. I think that institutions can be reformed. I think that understanding the historical context of those things actually allows that reform to happen because of course, an institution that was created, you know, that uh, to address uh, post-war time era would be a little different than, you know, addressing some of the technological and environmental challenges that we face today. So adapting these institutions to meet some of the modern challenges is, is understood. But this whole, let's just take a flamethrower to everything approach, I don't think serves us well in the long term. Unless you've been extremely good with your 2016 New Year's resolution to not watch ridiculous news clips, you're probably aware of the term fake news. 
what happens if we're watching a fake president or a fake prime minister or a fake political leader of any sort and we don't even realize it? A lie can run around the world before the truth has got its boots on, and even doubly so here in the social media age. Here's James Stotch, director at the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University, with his thoughts on the future of lies and mistruths. Well, I think, you know, when you look at um, the social media uh, ratings um, that uh, the the Chinese government is, is undertaking with its citizenry, um, you know, that, not to say we, we're, we're experiencing anything close to the same dynamic, but there are pieces of that. So, for example, yesterday in the news, um, it was discovered that WhatsApp uh, has been working with a company that is basically spamming people to plant uh, a, uh, a, I guess, a, a, a worm or a... Or a uh, a virus um, that um, monitors their uh, activity. So it monitors their conversations, um, it monitors their uh, browsing and so on. And, it, and it's actually designed to target activists. And so, you know, you see that, you see the Cambridge Analytica scandal with Facebook um, that again was, um, you know, a, a political, um, politically motivated um, viral technology that was profoundly and intentionally undermining the public good or the common good. Um, In that case, disrupting and influencing an entire election outcome, multiple Mm -hmm. election outcomes, if you include Brexit and others. Um, That, that's deeply concerning. Um, The other thing that's, that's kind of still in its infancy, but we will need a whole new set of skills to figure out how to navigate is what they call the deep fake. So we see early examples of, of this where uh, Theresa May or, or Barack Obama have been mimicked using um, um, uh, deep fake technology where you can actually you know, make, make the avatar that looks and sounds like Theresa May say absurd things. It's... it's relatively easy to figure that out. Actually, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation has a whole set of tools for people to uh, help dis- determine deep fakes from, from real uh, video. But, you know, it's only a matter of a few years before w- it becomes brutally difficult to distinguish between reality and, and artificial reality. Um, and so I, I don't have any su- suggestions for how to deal with that, but it will be a big issue. Well, I think it, I mean, if there's a silver lining to some of this, um, it's going to reinforce the need for things that we have over the last few decades um, marginalized a little bit in public discourse. And so what's an example of that? Um, We... uh, in Alberta, we used to place much more emphasis uh, universally in the education, public education system on the arts. And many public schools and the public system generally, while it still has room for the arts and there are still arts-based schools, uh, arts isn't seen as core um, in, in nearly the same way it once was. Um, it will have to be again 
to make a long story short. So think about the deep, deep fake example. Um, if we actually had everyone trained to some degree in drama, we might actually have a better chance of distinguishing between deep fakes and not deep fakes. Hmm. Um, so we, we have a better understanding of performance, what performance looks like, um, what is uh, what is authenticity versus what is uh, a performed performed theater, essentially. It would make us better citizens. Uh, it would make us cut through the BS, uh, I think, a little better. And so, yes, well beyond drama, we should be teaching more philosophy, more liberal arts of all kinds, and getting back to the roots of what liberal arts really are, right? The art of liberty. How do we, how do we maintain the skills, abilities, and mindsets to be free? That's the art of liberty, and that's what liberal arts ought to be. And so while we may say we need, we need tech, we need more technology, and in, in some ways we do, um, we actually need far more humanities and arts in our lives. Um, so I think, I think we will come around to recognizing this mm. and, and it eventually penetrate mainstream uh, discourse and public decision-making and spending. I sometimes joke that Canada should put 100% of all available research dollars into artificial intelligence. And with that focus we would either come out the other side with an ally with powers and abilities beyond our capacity to conceptualize, an ally that would help us with our most pressing challenges as a species and fellow resident of the earth. Or the AI would eradicate us somehow, and poof, humans are no longer trending on Twitter. Either way, problem solved, right? Well, Jay Baydala, founder and CEO of Goodpin, might have similar visions. Yes, uh, AI comes to mind. Artificial intelligence um, springs to mind when we have arguably five to ten of the greatest thinkers of our time saying that that is the greatest threat to humanity, artificial intelligence. Um, that perks me up uh, and makes me pay attention. Um, the potential for robots to do the thinking um, beyond us without any kind of uh, ability to control that it's it's it could go very very wrong yeah we've all seen the terminator movies i'm sure <laughs> end of the world stuff stepping back a bit from arnie and his terminator franchise dr lena turner co-founder of helpseeker.org and all-around do-gooder starts with oil. Well, not oil, but the new oil. Data. And how data, ethics, machine learning, money, and charities are all intertwined. Devices, the way that we're um, harvesting big data, and the, this idea that big data is the new gold, it's the new oil, right? Like that is concerning to me in the immediate term. And the reason for that is because in any research, the methodology in your research influences the data and inf therefore influences the results. So if the purpose of collection of the big data is profit for by a few, then necessarily using said data in the creation of machine learning and algorithms is going to be tainted by that same value. So what are we creating by 
um, that it's it's the seeds we sow, right? So that's the for sure the the number one thing because I, I fear, and it's back to the the Marxist readings is I fear that the means of production are going to be increasingly owned by you know not just a class but a handful of people so that's that's a big deal we've never had that before and it's those handful that control the machine learning or the algorithms yeah i mean for sure we and it might not be so you know such and such um billionaire says the algorithm needs to work this way like not it's not like that and that's not how power works anyway power is diffuse if you if we go back to foucault and the panopticon where we're monitoring and controlling um, the populace through constant observation and surveillance it's imagine the panopticon on crack <laughs> like actually on fentanyl and <laughs> mix like on highballs right it's uh it's crazy what we can do nowadays. Like, I don't think Foucault even, or, or no, although he probably did imagine that, <laughs> come to think of it, but we've never had a state where, where surveillance was um, permeated to, the, to this extent. So, you know, now you're talking about creating these perfect human beings and in the digital, uh, the, right, the genome work and digitalization of medicine as well and these future humans that we're creating and where class now also impacts our biology like that's interesting and scary as well so that's another thing that concerns me and you know firsthand working um, in this in this field I uh, become exposed to work in in the medicine field as well and in the genetics field so I know for sure that there's conversations around the commercialization strategy for the human genome. So it's something that humanity has done for the purpose of knowledge and the betterment is now on the commercialization block. So, uh, you know, governments are considering how they can make money off of the selling rights to the human genome to pharmaceutical companies. Like that's a conversation right now. Well, <laughs> that's a big deal too. Right. So how are we ensuring that the ethics of all, all these innovations are going to benefit the many when we don't even know that it's happening? Well, for sure, the work that we're doing through Help Seeker is, is going to be part of that. So I can speak to it from, from that perspective. We can start uh, seeing patterns in how services um, are distributed and look at that against other population trends. So we can see, for instance, once a city hits a certain population milestone, they start to um, show domestic violence shelter spaces pop up. So you know, it gives us some, ins some instantaneous uh, information about uh, potential research questions on, you know, what is it about a city size or is it that engenders domestic violence challenges or is it just that a policy response so the, the ways that we're asking questions that we didn't have data on before is is interesting but the automation on the front end so people looking and clicking through to get access to a service and using natural language and then us speeding up the because um, it's almost like a funnel people go in they look they look they go back they look at a bunch of things and then they eventually call something or email something so is there a way for us to speed up the time right, so that we can get them instantaneous access to what they're looking for based on just a couple of words? 
Um, the other piece is to say, well, if, we're, if we've mapped out the entire system, and, and we actually have, um, you know, what is it telling us about uh, maybe rethinking how the social safety net is operating? And I'll give you the example of it. The th one piece of work we did, and was school public policy is going to publish a piece on this, and it's to do with the charities paper I mentioned before, we looked across the country and through open data, we're able to mine and discern that there is about, oh my goodness, uh, half a trillion dollars worth of, worth of uh, investments in the nonprofit and charitable sector per year. And so that's, that's a significant amount of, of funding. Uh, I think charities consisted about 20% of the GDP of Canada, so huge amount of investment. Yet, the number one thing that we hear all the time is that w I don't know where to go for help. I don't, know, I don't know how to navigate the system. So if you have that many services, how can you speed up that, that process and how can you structure those services better? The other question is, and to do with the uh, future of work, is if we know that there's half a trillion dollars worth of social safety net resources, it begs the question, you know, is there a better way of doing that or spending that money? So can we think about things like universal basic income? Because before, the big argument is like, yes, but we can't afford it. And I'd say, well, we are already spending that money. And if half the purpose of uh, these services and benefits is to bring people out of poverty, why don't, you, why don't you just give them money then? Right? Is there a more efficient way to cut, cut out the middleman and see if we can create more streamlined approaches. The other concept is this idea of universal basic services. So universal basic income and basic services. And so what are the things that humans under Declaration of Human Rights have right to? So a rights-based, strength-based approach includes things like access to education, daycare, housing, basic income, etc. And then say, well, if that's the basic basket of services that everyone equitably should have access to, then let's pack let's create a system that provides that because right now what we have and what we see in help seekers is that every service has criteria so if you're you might be indigenous but you're not indigenous metis you know metis nation x or you're not you're this program's for 16 to 12 uh, 12 to 16 year old and you happen to be 17 so sorry we can't help you so th that's a that's a scarcity neoliberal view of the social safety net. If you flip it and you think about it from a rights-based perspective, then that would be a very disruptive way of, of doing it. But then it would beg the question of, that means we, need, we should have the conversation about dismantling and starting it over again, right? And that seems really crazy, but th I mean, the, the tweaking that we've been doing is not getting us any closer and we're, and we can't say that dropping another billion into a half a trillion is going to make a difference either. So it's not more money. Like that's, that's over, that argument. The more money we put in into a complex, non-functional system, you can't expect that that's going to be the disruption force to unlock it. So, so do you see machine learning as a way for us to kind of look through the keyhole and really kind of get a better, clearer understanding of what we're actually dealing with? Exactly. Exactly. So all this work around the, the half a trillion, that was all done through analytics. So we, we didn't even know, you know, and that's just scratching the surface of this. So imagine that systems map of half a trillion when we minded to put it onto Help Seeker so that we would make it accessible. We said, well, there's like 
250,000 different organizations doing good in Canada. That's amazing. But only about 8% actually delivered services. So the rest of the funding goes into this huge middle layer, right, where you have, sometimes you have very awkward salaries that you're staring at (laughs) and I'm in the private sector so you know you're like wow quarter million dollars staff of eight that's interesting what exactly you know I could you know I could house like 20 people with that so it there's there's lots of opportunities so before we start saying that we don't have enough money like I think it's on us to do to think of ourselves and and to challenge ourselves to to do better as well and I say that having been in the nonprofit sector for a really, really long time before this role, that um, again, it's very, very well, well-meaning people, and so that's the commonality. So if we're really, really wanting to um, to do things differently, then I think it's leveraging that common will to do good, but then being okay with the uncomfortableness, right? And and I think that's that's the challenge. Is like we all buy into the vision, but then when it comes down to it, it's really hard to do disruption. It's interesting because in, in the article with uh, James and I wrote, we talked about uh, the, the tech savviness is, uh, is just something that the nonprofit or the social sector just needs to get on with because, um, I mean, certainly the workforce is becoming uh, more in tune with machine learning as a, cause as a mainstream concept. And so as we attract people into into the sector looking at these disciplines that that have infused machine learning to start with and or looking at opportunities to upgrade the learning within our organizations to infuse machine learning in in workflows is a huge opportunity and I say that because on my Facebook account there's this thing that constantly pops up where it says you know all you can all the counseling you want for uh, only $59 a week, join, you know, join now. So and point, you can see the point of that. I mean, from a business perspective, what they're doing is they're recruiting P, like highly qualified counselors and then they're creating a service where you do tele-counseling with them at a really, really cheap price. And then I look at the funding proposals from um, different nonprofit social service providers and the cost is $15,000 per client versus you know 50 times 12 right like a fraction of that so the business community is coming at it and it's not going to be long before government says well i could spend a thousand bucks all you can counsel or i can spend fifteen thousand so if we don't figure it out it's already here right that that competition is already happening of phd level counselors that are in the private sector which is again a whole side that we never consider in our social purpose conversations because mm-hmm. they're they're over here right but actually not at all they're they're hu- they're a part of the social safety net as well and have something to contribute and they're mobilizing because they're much more nimble as well so they're developing new business models that are going to start cutting into that half a trillion dollars because it's because it's out there so uh, it's it's happening already we just may not have tuned into it yet Well, it's that time when we introduce Cool Mission Will Share, a spotlight on an organization that one of our guests feels is on the right path and performing excellent work in the area of doing good. 
and the organization we're sharing today has been chosen by Disrupting Goods learning architect, Raheem Sajan, and he wants to shine a light on the Global Center for Pluralism. Here's Raheem with more. Uh, the organization that excites me the most is the Global Center for Pluralism uh, because it's really an effort by the people of Canada through the government of Canada and a collaboration with His Highness the Aga Khan in a very unique context to explore the ways in which societies work, deal with conflict, and deal with issues that are complex. And could the mechanism of pluralism, which essentially defined is uh, people from different backgrounds uh, working together and being valued, f be being different in that context. Uh, that organization is something that I'm following personally, and I'm trying to learn from it and trying to understand the studies that they're doing all over the world, trying to understand what makes societies function in productive and peaceful ways. Uh, and I, uh, I'm really excited by that. It's uh, to uh, try and for the organization to actually make a difference all over the world, to export that sort of notion of Canada being good for the world. Uh, we definitely have had our dark stories, but we also have some really cool sort of experiments in trying to bring different people together in peaceful environments. We're all working together to for a better society. Can those lessons actually be exported? Can we import other lessons to us so that we can become even wiser? Because I don't think we have a monopoly on the notion of pluralism, but we do have this sort of opportunity to uh, become even better at it. Founded in Ottawa by His Highness the Aga Khan, in partnership with the Government of Canada, the Global Centre for Pluralism is an independent, charitable organization whose vision is of a world where human differences are valued and diverse societies thrive. Inspired by Canada's experience as a diverse and inclusive country, the Centre was created to advance positive responses to the challenge of living peacefully and productively together in a diverse society. You can find out more by pointing your browser at pluralism.ca. Welcome once again to Kurzweil's Corner, a peek into a possible future. Inventor, author, futurist, and most certainly an outlier of human beings, Ray Kurzweil has a technology prediction success rate of roughly 86% since the 1990s. In this chapter of Kurzweil's Corner, we're sharing reactions from three of our guests to Kurzweil's prediction that by the end of the 2020s, yep, that's this decade, that most diseases will disappear as nanobots become smarter than current medical technology. Reacting to this claim that perhaps COVID-19 doesn't need a vaccine, but rather an army of very small, self-propelled machines that have some degree of autonomy and the ability to reproduce, are in order. Brianna Brownell, Disrupting Goods AI expert from Pure Strategy Inc., James Stotch from the Institute for Community Prosperity, and Leora Rothschild, the Executive Director for CBSR. I think that if you would have asked me this, um, even six months ago, um, I would have said that, you know, this is actually quite likely, but what I've been seeing in, in the medical community. So we've been starting to work, uh, within the healthcare industry, uh, with peer strategy is that there's actually a lot of, um, of unknowns in the medical community about the ways in which 
certain diseases affect the body. And so I would say that um, it's not as clear cut as one would think, unfortunately. Um, I think that if you look at things, technologies like CRISPR, um, that is a, a huge, huge, huge boost to our ability to eradicate disease and, and to be able to provide treatment to diseases that would never have been before possible. But, um, you know, saying most diseases will go away, I think, unfortunately, there's a lot more that we don't understand about um, the way in which disease affects the body than uh, we maybe would have thought even, you know, even five years ago. My mind is blown by that. It's absolutely blown by that. And I, I mean, if that's, if that's even half true, that's extraordinary. And it's not something I've really thought about at all. So I, yeah, and, and I don't even know, I mean, I don't even know how that would work, like what the nanobots do or how they, you know, but yeah. it's, um, yeah, I, well, I think that's, I think that's hugely exciting. It, it's, terrifying to some degree um, if those nanobots can be used for other purposes and so on if uh, surely they could be weaponized in the same way that we weaponize smallpox and so on but um, but in general it's probably a good thing so yeah I, I, I have a lot of time for Ray Kurzweil he I think that uh, his predictions are provocative and as you say a, a really good uh, success rate with respect to um, like future pandemics and diseases, yeah, I think it's really interesting um, what new technologies might do to uh, alleviate disease. Obviously, welcome that. I think that um, the the history of of pandemic and um, and and disease control generally seems to favor those in the higher socioeconomic bracket where the need is greatest in um, areas of the world where there isn't a lot of access to healthcare. And so I hope that as we get better in eradicating preventable diseases, that we either start with or at the very least give equal amount of attention to those most in need, and um, so that that's that's my that's my hope for our process for how we utilize and leverage technology to eradicate disease. We just wanted to say that if this podcast gets your little gray cells hungry for more about how the social profit sector can get better at doing good, we recommend listening to Pause a podcast from Alberta Social Innovation Connect. In pause, partners and collaborators take a moment to sit down together, reflecting on the work they're doing to address the root causes of complex problems in their communities. You'll hear reflective dialogue from people working to shift the status quo to new or different ways of working. For example, through social innovation labs, social enterprise models, and coalitions and networks. You can subscribe to pause in your local podcast player of choice, or you can find pause at absiconnect.ca slash podcast. Thank you. And now back to the end of the show. That's it for this episode of Disrupting Good. We hope you enjoyed it. This show was made by Dr. Alina Turner, Brianna Brownell, Jay Baydala, Leo Rothschild, 
James Stotch, Raheem Sajan, Coulson Patrick, Elise Martinoski, and me, Matt Ewens. Special thanks to Colson Proudfoot for his production time and attention in this episode. Thanks to Human Elements for hosting this episode of DisruptingGood.com and to the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University for their generous support for this project. I'm at Matt Ewens on Twitter, and you'll hear us next time on Disrupting Good when our guests tackle automation and jobs in the upcoming driverless vehicle revolution. All next time in Episode 5 of Disrupting Good. Viva la revolution! 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 Viva la vehicle revolution! Yeah, Colson, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't have any of those in there.